It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week in the show, we've got chemists versus computers as AI tackles some tough chemistry problems. Plus, phase separation, something that happens in lava lamps that could be massively important inside your cells as well. This is The Nature Podcast for the 29th of March, 2018. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Artificial intelligence, particularly involving neural networks, has been a hot topic in recent years. AlphaGo, the computer that mastered the game of Go, quickly outshone human players and was a prime example of how this kind of AI can learn and deduce strategies. Now, this skill has been applied to the world of chemistry, as Sharmini is about to tell us. Yes, thanks, Ben. I have been finding out all about chemistry this week and some of the challenges that AI may be able to help chemists with. Now, I have a vague idea about what it is that chemists do all day. I'm pretty sure it involves mixing lots of colourful things together in beakers. My chemist friends will almost certainly correct me on this next time I see them, but it'll do for now. What I didn't know until this week, however, was how people know which chemical reactions are needed and in which order to get a particular compound out the other end. It turns out an important skill in order to be able to synthesise a particular drug or organic molecule is to work backwards from the final product and figure out a reaction route. This is known as retrosynthesis. I called up longtime drug discovery researcher Derek Lowe to find out how it works. For any kind of compound that needs to be synthesized, a chemist will look at a structure and start thinking, what could this come from? What reaction could I do to get to this? And there are chemists who have a reputation of being able to look at a complicated molecule and see how this thing rearranges, this carbon goes here, this thing ends up, it's just beautiful. It's like a magic trick when you see it. So it sounds like chemistry is, in a way, quite a lot of guesswork. Obviously, it's not random guessing. Chemists are using their knowledge. But how has different technology thus far been able to change the field of chemistry and, and chemists' ability to, to build molecules? When I was in graduate school, this is like the, um, the early to mid-1980s, there were still a lot of people who, when they saw 
a neat new reaction. Oh, great, this is a way I can form a carbon-carbon bond between these things. When they'd see a neat new reaction, they would physically write it down on a 3 by 5 index card because the chemistry literature is just huge. So you have to have something to keep track of this. But that all disappeared as it became more and more possible to search the literature by drawing structures into an online database and saying, okay, here's the starting material I have, and here's the product I want to make from it. What's out there? But stringing them together into a plan, that's still up to the chemist. And I can understand how a computer might have access um, to a lot of information, uh, but the challenge here is more the sort of guesswork part and, and the based on your knowledge, which one of these is likely to work. Um, and that's something that fits in really well with this sort of slightly newer field of neural networks as a form of artificial intelligence. Well, there has been a lot of work in recent years on trying to get this kind of computer retrosynthesis to work. And there are some commercial programs out there that you can buy. But people had to sit down with the organic chemistry literature and say, okay, this can go to this, but only if there's not another group like this, and if the temperature is not too high, but if you have this other group, it can still work only if, and it just goes on and on and on. So the, comp, the, the programs we have now are the result of a tremendous amount of labor. This new paper, though, is, is interesting because they didn't bother to do any of that. They used software that is much better at inferring the rules and transformations, and they just turned it loose on one of these big reaction databases and said, go to it. Look through all of these millions of reactions and get back to us. Figure out the rules on your own. Thanks, Derek. Now, Derek's written a news and views about this new paper, which reports on a piece of AI software that was programmed to look through existing chemical reactions and try to learn how to predict retrosynthetic routes for new molecules. I asked one of the authors of the new paper, Marvin Segler, to explain. What we did in our paper was we, we take neural networks to um, predict the most promising um, reactions to use to build a molecule. And when we show the computer enough examples of how molecules have been made in the past, it can learn to generalize to new molecules and then can apply kind of the knowledge it has gained from all these historic examples to the novel molecules as well. And why was it difficult to achieve to get this computer to figure out which reactions are going to work and which ones won't? Essentially, chem chemistry can't be really codified in a set of fixed rules which a computer can then use to operate on. And uh, what we try to do is to see if we can get the computer to kind of mimic the intuition that an expert would develop after seeing lots of examples of chemistry and running lots of experiments in the lab. And when you started out on the project, how successful were you expecting your programme to be? Yeah, I mean, basically, when we started out with the project, we had no idea if it would work at all. I was surprised that it worked so well, basically, that it can then figure out on its own how to plan the synthesis. And then when we showed the outcomes to the chemists that they couldn't basically distinguish the solutions that a computer would propose from solutions that humans had proposed, that was quite amazing. 
That was Marvin Segler. As he mentioned, their method for testing the programme was to show the computer's work to some expert chemists alongside work from actual humans and to see if they could tell the difference, which they couldn't. I asked Derek Lowe how chemists like him feel about these kind of advances. Are people going to be thinking, hey, this robot's going to steal my job? Or is it going to be more, thank goodness, we don't have to do that part anymore? Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, they're going to be thinking both of those at the same time in in rapid altern- alternation. It's going to be tricky because the natural feeling is, oh, my God, you know, it's coming. I had that feeling back in about 1986. I saw video of this robot arm mixing reactions and, and moving things around. I thought, oh, my God, someone has invented the mechanical graduate student. I'm in trouble. Fortunately, it didn't come on quite that quickly. But looking at this software, it's already fairly impressive, and it's just going to get better. So are you out of a job? No, thank God. Because what it's going to do is it's going to move retrosynthesis, the sitting down and figuring out, okay, how am I going to make this molecule? It's going to turn that into grunt work that is better done by a machine. And that's going to free us up as chemists to think about more complicated stuff that the machines can't handle. We're going to be thinking more about what molecules should we make and why are we making them? Those are harder questions. That was researcher and blogger Derek Lowe, who has written a News and Views article on the research. You also heard from Marvin Segler. You can find his paper and the News and Views article over at nature.com slash nature. Later in the show, we'll be finding out about a growing field of study for cell biologists. Up next, though, we're joined by Noah Baker for this week's Research Highlights. Have you ever been so hungry that you can't think of anything else, even pain? Well, hopefully not. But neuroscientists have now found a brain circuit that could be behind such a trade-off in mice. They noticed that ravenous rodents with a sore paw spent less time licking their wounds than their well-fed friends with the same injury. The team tracked down the pain-blocking brain cells and found that they were the very same neurons involved in making the mice eat. Curiously, the effect only quashes long-lasting pain, like inflammation. The hungry mice still reacted to the sharp stab of a needle. This ability to prioritise the body's competing calls for attention is essential for survival. Forage for the full paper in Cell. Continuing with unappetising stories, chemists have been digging through sewage sludge to find bacteria that produce toluene, a hydrocarbon that's regularly added to fuel to boost its power. The team raised a microbial menagerie from their sewage selection and screened thousands of proteins looking for the enzymes likely to be involved in making toluene. Then, they singled out the exact genes encoding those enzymes. In the future, the enzymes could potentially convert plant products into toluene, replacing some of the billions of tonnes produced from petroleum each year. Extract the fuel paper from Nature Chemical Biology. Next up, reporter Ellie Mackay has been finding out about the burgeoning field of phase separation in cell biology. We've probably all seen suspended liquids before, perhaps in lava lamps or a greasy pan soaking in your kitchen sink. But liquid droplets can also be made from protein molecules in living cells. 
I'm talking about a concept called liquid phase separation. It's a field of cell research which is more physics than biology, and it's gaining a lot of attention from scientists around the world. I'm extremely excited about this because it turns around our view of how the cell works. We're actually talking about microenvironments, gradients, fluid dynamics. So this brings a whole new complexity of our understanding. But it has the huge power to explain puzzling observations that we cannot explain since years. That's Susanna Wegman. She's a neuroscientist studying these liquid droplets and how they might be related to disease. We'll hear more from her later. But first, I spoke to Tony Hyman from the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics in Germany who explain the concept of phase separation. The easiest way to imagine phase separation is the following. You have two molecules, A and B, and they're diffusing around and mixed. And then conditions change, and suddenly A prefers to be with A and B prefers to be with B, then you phase separate. And the classic example we tend to use is a vinaigrette, and it's separated out into oil and vinegar. It's this process which explains how proteins can form what appear to be liquid droplets within the cytoplasm, and they're quite different than the other compartments in the cell. If you take a membrane-bound compartment like a mitochondrion, it's obvious why all the components are in the same place, because they've got a membrane to constrain them. But nobody understood how it was that in these non-membrane-bound compartments that the components all stayed in one place. And that's what we learned from studies of phase separation, was that the physical chemistry of phase separation provide an explanation for how they could all stay in one place in the cell. Without a membrane, the droplets are held together by the physical properties of the proteins and their surroundings. I asked Susanna if factors like pH, temperature or pressure may play a role in this. So it's actually all of the above what you just mentioned the behavior of the protein or the, the different charge distribution, the hydrophobicity, and all of those factors play into the affinity to each other and on, on the phase separation behavior. The idea of phase separation in living cells has been around for over a century. In 1899, Edmund Wilson talked about suspended drops with a different chemical nature. But the theory remained on the fringes of research for many years. And even when phase separation was observed, the phenomenon was attributed to artificial artefacts. But eventually, people started to take the theory seriously. Well, if we look historically, it would make sense to explain the organisation of the cell using physical chemistry. And all those theories really stumbled on the fact that no one knew enough about the molecules to constrain theories. So then, well, basically, the microscopy got a lot better so that we could begin to look at these drops. People all over the world started to look at different structures and realised that there may be a general phenomenon for how you organise cellular biochemistry. By combining earlier work on the physical chemistry of the cell with this newfound detail of molecular biology, scientists are now beginning to see the bigger picture of cellular organisation. And scientists are discovering these liquid droplets have a key function for the proteins they're made from. So these droplets could be used, for example, as um, a mini-reactors. So you, you basically concentrate proteins in a small volume. So it has been described very nicely in the 80s and 90s as a micro-compartmentation of the cytosol and has been like then super advanced um, by Tony Hyman. We, he showed that this is actually has biological relevance in diverse aspects of life. So the droplets are like a crucible for reactions to occur, but do they do anything else? 
If you, let's say you have a, an enzyme with two different substrates, if the enzyme goes into the compartment and one of the substrates, but the other substrate can't go into the compartment, then you immediately increase the specificity of the reaction. That gives you a number of advantages, provides a whole new layer of control. But these droplets are also related to disease. How? Well, it's all to do with the physical state of the proteins. One of the things we noticed as we began to look more carefully is that although many compartments are of liquids, for instance, when the cell needs to survive stress or needs to be dormant, they harden into what are more gel-like structures to shut down biochemistry. So some are liquids, but some are more like gels and some are actually more like solids. It's this hardening of the liquid droplets that's associated with diseases, particularly neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, ALS and Huntington's. They are linked to clumping and solidification of proteins, a process called aggregation. We've known for a long time that many, if not most, neurodegenerative diseases are, t- are tied up in some way with protein aggregation. And many of the proteins that form these aggregates in disease, when we started to look at them in cells, it turns out they were part of these dynamic compartments. So in other words, they normally form liquids, but then they undergo what we call an aberrant phase transition to become you know, an aggregate. So the compromise of concentrating your proteins into compartments for faster reactions is a risk of over-concentrating them into aggregates, and this is extremely damaging for the cell. You have a disbalance of transcription, and if that is impaired, you can think of um, destabilizing and collapse of microtubules, insufficient microtubule repair, and that has, of course, detrimental effects on the cell as well. Everything goes down the drain. Another key factor here is that protein aggregation increases with age, potentially explaining the increased development of neurodegenerative diseases in later life. But this link may also be useful for potential treatments. Let's say you think about the problem of ageing as a problem of protein solubility, that proteins are becoming less soluble as you age, and if you could find chemicals that keep proteins more soluble, that might help us think about how to prevent protein aggregation. That would, of course, potentially help ameliorate disease. So we have found chemicals that do that. It turns out to be really relatively straightforward to identify chemicals that affect the physical chemistry of these drops. And this is why a growing number of researchers are interested in phase separation, as it offers a different approach to treating a range of age-related diseases. The exciting thing for me is that there are many different neurodegenerative diseases involving many different proteins. But the idea of modulating the solubility of a general class of proteins suggests we might have a a more general way of dealing with neurodegenerative diseases. That would be potentially a great step forward in thinking about how to prevent aggregation in disease and ageing. That was Tony Hyman from the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics in Germany talking to Ellie Mackay. You also heard from Susanna Wegman from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in the US. Nature had a recent feature on phase separation, which you can find over at nature.com forward slash news. Now it's time for the news chat, and I'm joined here in the studio by Nisha Gaind, one of the news editors here at Nature. Hi, Nisha. Hi, Ben. So for our first story this week, then, we've got something that just missed last week's show by a squeak, but I really wanted to talk about it all the same, and, uh, and it's about space. Uh, Nisha, what have you got for us? So this is the exciting news that the European Space Agency has approved the world's first space telescope dedicated to studying exoplanet atmospheres. There have been several ground-based telescopes that can study atmospheres of exoplanets, which are 
those outside our own solar system, but this is the first one that will do it from space. OK, well, wow. Well, so what's it going to be doing then? So the probe is called the Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey. Just rolls off the tongue then. I guess aerial for short. Aerial for short. And what it's going to do is study about a thousand exoplanet systems. Um, and using a spectrograph, it's going to look at the light that filters through a planet's atmosphere as it passes or transits across the face of its host star. And that's going to reveal the chemical fingerprints of gases that shroud the body in its atmosphere. I mean, this is by no means kind of the first sort of experiments or, or group of experiments to look at exoplanets. Um, how, how is this one going to be different? So this one is going to look just at atmospheres of exoplanets. Previous probes have tried to find new planets or measured their sizes, masses and orbits. And this one is going to look at mostly warm planets, so those that are roughly above 350 degrees Celsius. So quite warm then. Um, I suppose maybe not looking for extraterrestrials? Not looking for extraterrestrials. These are ones that would almost certainly not harbour life as we know it. But what the mission really wants to do is get an idea of what a typical solar system really looks like. And why would we want to do that then? So exoplanet researchers are coming to a growing realisation that our own system and our own planet is probably atypical. And that means understanding the bigger picture of exoplanets is more important. So what these observations with Ariel will help them to do is to build a standard model of exoplanets. And what are the researchers behind Ariel themselves saying? How excited are they? They're really excited. This is a big mission. It's going to cost about half a billion euros. Um, and they're excited that the addition of this data is going to give them a really full picture of what exoplanets are made of, how they form and how they evolve. OK, then well, let's maybe move on to our second story, Nisha, and one that perhaps isn't quite such good news. Yeah, this one's a little bit bleak, Ben. This is about ecology and a bunch of assessments that are really looking at how our ecosystems around the world are coping, and it's not great. So who's been looking into it and what have they found? So the organisation that's been looking into it is called the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Cool, you're really getting some long names today, my goodness. That is IPBES for short, and that's the global science body that has been set up by the United Nations in 2012 to track the planet's ecological health. And IPBES has produced five assessments looking at different regions of Earth and how biodiversity is coping. Hmm, and, uh, and I'm going to guess the answer is not well. The answer is not well. The reports found that in every region they looked at, biodiversity is being degraded. Um, and there are some pretty alarming statistics. For example, they found that the groups most at risk are mosses, liverworts and freshwater fish, and that climate change is set to cause the loss of more than half of Africa's bird and mammal species by 2100. Oh my goodness, and uh, I understand they've looked at ecosystems as well, and uh, any good news there? I'm afraid not. They looked at wetland ecosystems and they found that they were the most harmed on the planet, and nearly 90% of them have been lost in the modern era. But there is a little bit of good news, a little bit of progress. They found that in the Asia-Pacific region between 2004 and 2017, the amount of protected areas on land grew by 0.3% and the amount of marine protected areas grew by 13.8%. While this does seem to be a very comprehensive body of work, perhaps not everybody's delighted with it. So that's right. This is one of the most comprehensive assessments of ecosystems in the past few decades, but there has been some criticism of IPBES. Observers say that it's too focused on scientific assessments and that they could actually be doing more work to support policy on the ground and build local knowledge to make a difference in reversing degradation of ecosystems. Well, what needs to be done to address this then? So there's actually going to be an independent external review of IPBES and that's due to begin next year. But in the meantime, at best, the panel is going to be moving forward with three new planned assessments, and one of those is going to be on the sustainable use of wild species. 
Mm, so uh, I guess all we can do is hope for some good news then. I think so. Well, thank you, Nisha. Um, listeners, for more on these stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Nature Podcast or send us an email, podcast at nature.com, where this week we got a thumbs up from Ralph Latif. Well, thumbs up right back to you. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.